You're listening to Episode. I'm Natalie. You may also know me on the internet streets as Tali or Miss Tali. Or maybe you've never heard of me at all and that's fine too. I went on a quest to learn little known stories about Haiti. So I talked with a group of amazing Haitian scholars and thinkers and asked them to tell me a favorite anecdote of theirs. And now I'm inviting you to come learn with me. Anale. I'm going to start this episode with an anecdote of my own for a change. There's a bit of a legend in my family and the details vary depending on which member of the family is retelling the story, but the main point remains the same. So, my great-grandfather was some kind of a rebel soldier and one day mid-battle or something, he was running and looking for refuge. A kind woman took him in and let him hide in her house for a few hours or a few days or a few weeks. It varies depending on which family member is telling you the story, like I said. He eventually left and went on to live his life. A year down the road, him and his wife had my grandfather. And when he got older, he eventually met a young lady named Esther and they fell in love and got married. Esther is my grandmother. Um they would later learn that Esther, it turns out, is the daughter of the kind woman who offered my grandfather's father shelter all those years ago while he was running for his life. So, you know, fate, love, all that beautiful stuff. I didn't quite get it then, but this is how the US occupation was introduced to me. And as I became older, I would learn more and more what exactly my great-grandfather was running from or running for. My mother's side of the family, you see, is from the north of Haiti, the site of the violent resistance against the US occupation that began in 1915. And my great-grandfather was a kaku, which is what they called soldiers of the resistance army against the occupation led by Chalmay Pilat. That's enough about my family though. I'm super excited about this episode because I had a great talk with Ale Martin and he is a brilliant young Haitian man doing amazing things. He's a documentary filmmaker and he's currently working on a documentary about the US occupation of Haiti from the years 1915 to 1934 and it's entitled The Forgotten Occupation. A few things about today's episode. I recorded this interview during a series of phone calls so the sound quality it fluctuates from good to not as good but please bear with us because this episode is really a gem. And we had a great talk about the occupation, more specifically the resistance led by Chalmay Pilalt, but this barely scratches the surface of the complex layers of what led to this, what took place during the occupation and the profound effects it has on Haiti till this day. Because of that, this episode is one of what I hope will be many talks about this occupation. But I've blabbed enough. Let's get into this. My formal research started in college, maybe sophomore year in college. Mm-hmm. I read um Self-Determining Haiti by James Weldon Johnson. And it was a fascinating essay. So James Weldon Johnson is an African-American. Mhm. His great-grandmother was Haitian. Right? Mm-hmm. She had fled Haiti during the Haitian Revolution. I think they went to the Bahamas from the Bahamas, made their way into the United States. And um yeah, so James Weldon Johnson, I guess for that reason he felt like he had a personal connection to Haiti. He was a uh, one of the early members of the NAACP, so you know, he had a very close relationship with W.B. Du Bois. He he composed Lift Every Voice and Sing, right? That's correct. Mm-hmm. Yes. He went to investigate the occupation. He stayed there for 3 months and he came back and wrote this essay, Self-Determined in Haiti, 
that was subsequently published by The Nation magazine. And that's the essay I first read when I was doing research on the occupation. And that essay sort of kind of, you know, blew me away about the things that the Marines were doing in Haiti. The justification given is that it is necessary for the pacification of the country. Pacification would never have been necessary had not American policies been filled with so many stupid and brutal blunders. And it will never be effective so long as pacification means merely the hunting of ragged Haitians in the hills with machine guns. That was an excerpt from James Weldon Johnson's Self-Determining Haiti. Testimonies. James Weldon Johnson went to Haiti to bear witness to what was going on and then came back to the United States to give testimony about the treatment that Haitians were being subjected to. It's the testimonies, testimonies like these and that of Haitians and even of the American soldiers themselves that can serve to teach us about what was going on exactly at the time so we can pull the necessary lessons from it. However, the few documented testimonies are not easily accessible to the everyday person. And unfortunately, a great number of them have been destroyed. This is why a project like the Forgotten Occupation that takes scattered pieces about the occupation and puts them together into one place so that we can analyze it and study it is so, so very important. One of the sources that I've used for the film quite extensively is I don't know how to translate that. I guess it would be The White Men Are Invading. It's a five-volume series on the United States occupation of Haiti. And man, I think it's so richly detailed. He wrote them starting in like maybe from 1967 all the way maybe to 1984. Basically, Roger Gaillard was a leftist historian, you know. Haiti itself has ha- had a very dismissive attitude towards the occupation. I say that because there's not really a wealth of literature on the U.S. occupation. You know what I'm saying? And Roger Gaillard is probably the only person who basically took time out to go into the countryside and interviewed the people who were part of the occupation. He interviewed the Kakos who fought against the occupation. And he recorded a lot of these interviews. Unfortunately, I was thinking that I was going to use some of these interviews um, on my film, but it looks like they were lost in an earthquake. Uh, another you know, source of information, you know, so the Marine Museum in Chronicle, Virginia, they have about 5,000 collections of the United States Marines who went to Haiti. I obviously didn't go through all of them, you know what I'm saying, because it's a lot. But I thought that was very interesting, you know, so you could see, you could find some of the letters they were writing from Haiti to home. Uh, I, I found a document about this Marine while he was in Haiti. He basically resigned because, you know, when the Marines were in Haiti, they created the Haitians under Armourie. So when he found that as a white male, he had to train and serve with black officers. He was a little bit, well, not a little bit, he was basically offended and resigned from his position. I found another document where one Marine, they shot another American Marine, the Kakos, that is. So he got mad. He went on a revenge spree and basically killed about 100 Haitians. You know, stuff like that, that you don't find in history books. Okay, okay. So let's rewind a little bit. Why were the Americans in Haiti at all? And what did they do, right? 
So like the excerpt in Johnson's essay says, the main excuse was quote unquote pacification. The events that led to the invasion are very layered, but the Haitian president at the time, Villebois Guillaume Sam, had a bunch of political prisoners killed. And in retaliation, the families of those prisoners had him killed. So the Americans came swooping in under the guise of helping Haitians keep the peace that they could not keep. Also bringing economic opportunities to the people. But of course, it was more complicated than that. The U.S. government had previously made a few attempts to make Haiti sign conventions with them that were not at all in the Haitian government's interest and had failed. The U.S. government was also unhappy with the part of the Haitian constitution that prohibits foreigners from owning land on Haitian soil. So the assassination of President Sam was their way in. And as a result, many Haitians were killed. They installed a puppet president. They rewrote the constitution. They fixed that pesky little land ownership issue. And like Pastel Police explained to us in episode four of this podcast, sorry if you don't speak Creole because that episode wasn't Creole, but this was the first constitution that established French as Haiti's only official language, thus excluding Creole. A whole lot of other stuff happened, but I like to keep these episodes down to 15 minutes. So that's that. So basically, there was this thing known as debt intervention syndrome. So debt intervention syndrome was throughout the early 20th century and late 19th century, Europe held a lot of political sway over all the Latin American countries and Caribbean countries because what they'll do is they'll give them, they'll give them loans. So loans to Argentina, loans to Brazil, loans to Mexico and Colombia. And then if you defaulted on those loans, then we get to invade you. We bring in the military we're like, listen, you're irresponsible. You can't pay your loans on time. We're taking over your country. You know, with the Monroe Doctrine, the United States wanted to basically be in charge of the Caribbean and Latin America. So what the United States did, any country that owed money, any country that defaulted on a debt, the United States will invade that country, take over the custom houses, and then pay that money to the European bankers or bondholders, what have you. They did it in Panama, Nicaragua, you know, they invaded um, Veracruz in Mexico, they invaded the Dominican Republic and a host of other countries. The only country that they never invaded because they could not invade it was Haiti. Because Haiti, from the time it contracted its debt in 1825 to France up until the U.S. occupation, was the only country in all of Latin America and all of the Caribbean that never defaulted on its debt. So the United States could not invade Haiti because Haitians always paid their debt on time. So that's why Haiti was one of the last countries to be invaded in the Americas. So that's why in 1915, after Hilbert and Sam committed 167 prisoners to their deaths, and the families of those prisoners went and had their revenge by hacking him to pieces in the middle of four brands, Woodrow Wilson was able to say, these Haitians are crazy, they're killing their own people, let's go in and occupy the country. Alan just so happens to be the author of one of my favorite essays that we've published on Way Magazine, entitled Haiti and the Ghost of 100 Years. The opening line reads, quote, There is in Haiti a particular ghost that has been haunting the people of the nation for 100 years. It haunts not only their persons, but their politics, their very livelihood, end quote. 
And he goes on about the economic policies of the time and how that ideology permeates Haitian politicians' rhetorics even today. But there are other long-lasting effects of the occupation, cultural and societal effects still alive today in both Haiti and even in the United States. By the way, this is where the sound gets a little iffy. I'm sorry. When I was growing up, people like my grandfather, people like my granduncle, you know, my grandmother's brother, and host of other people were always fantasizing about this day when the United States would take over Haiti because they believed that, you know, with the United States and Haiti, Haiti would get better. So you often heard people sort of like bemoaning the fact that Haiti was not Puerto Rico and that they wish, you know, the U.S. could come and just turn Haiti into Puerto Rico. So psychologically, I'll say you can feel the effect of that occupation. Unbeknownst to me before I dived into this film, Haitians were amongst one of the first bandits in the silent film era. And what I mean by that is the United States Marines, when they wanted to recruit kids to come into the, to join the Marines, they would take all the battle footage they had shot in Haiti and they would play it in the movie theaters and uh, throughout America. And the Marines are always the main stars and the Haitians are always presented as the bandits. And the word bandits was always written on screen whenever, you know, they were presenting the Haitian villain. Uh, a lot of Marines that came from Haiti, particularly um, Faustin Workers, who, who was known as the White King of Lagunar, him and a host of other servicemen wrote a lot of novels about the occupation and the Haitians were always the villains and the Marines are always the heroes, you know? So the occupation, so Haiti was introduced to the American mindset, to, 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 to American mass consciousness by the occupation and by the subsequent novels by these servicemen on the occupation. So a lot of stereotypes Americans have about Haiti you can trace them back to these novels. You know what else we get as a result of these novels? The American obsession with zombies and the demonization of voodoo that created a lot of tropes that made the horror film industry what it is today. In fact, the first ever zombie movie entitled White Zombie is an example of this. and It takes place in Haiti and was made during the U.S. occupation. It's story time. And today, Alain tells us the super-abridged saga of Chalmay Piral's resistance against the U.S. military and its unfortunate end. When the Americans went in, they disbanded the Haitian army. And, you know, those guys were left without jobs. That Haitian, that disbanded Haitian army, many of them are the ones who formed the cacos and the violent resistance. But they didn't stand any chance. You know, those guys were fighting with rocks, with machetes, Springfield rifles. And at the time, the Americans were becoming the most powerful military in the world. We're talking about armored tanks, talking about automatic weapons. We're talking about airplanes. Haiti was one of the first countries to be subjected to air bombing. They deployed airplanes throughout Haiti, and they were dropping bombs all over the villages, killing men, women, children, livestock. They believe at one point, Chalman Peral had up to 5,000 men, which is an extraordinary number when you think about it, because at the time, Haiti only, Haiti's population was about a million and a half. So they relied on guerrilla tactics, you know, sneaky, sneaking up on American Marines while they slept, 
raiding gendarmery posts, stealing weapons, ammunition, money, food if they had to. Salman Terat was killed in 1919. Eventually, when Salman Terat was captured, right, people didn't believe that he was dead. And the people who were fighting for him didn't believe that he was dead. There was a rebel at the court, and this is a year after the execution of Salman Terat. And, you know, they, put, they catch him and they ask him, who are you fighting for? And the rebel was, you know, taken aback by the question. He's like, what do you mean who I'm fighting for? I'm fighting for Salman Terat. No one believed that Salman Terat was dead. They figured the only way to convince people that Salman Terat is dead is to take his cadaver. So they took pictures of the body and then, you know, had a couple of negatives. So they flew over the mountains of Haiti and then they were dropping the pictures all over the Gulf of Haiti. So it took two years for Akako existence to be completely quelled after the death of Salman Piyat. After Piyat was assassinated, the man who took over the resistance was Benoit Batavi. Benoit Batavi was not Salman Piyat. He didn't know how to read. He didn't know how to write. He did not believe on fighting on Wednesdays, right? On Wednesdays, he, he, he always let his guard down because he believed it was a day of rest. You know, it was a day for the, for the spirit, for the loss. He'll have no guns on him. There wouldn't be any attack on American Marines. So one of his captains basically betrayed him. He told the Americans about this whole thing about Wednesday. So the Americans were able to track him down on a Wednesday, and he had no weapons on him. And that's how they were able to, to basically kill him. And to, to, to humiliate him, they sort of dressed him up in American military clothing and then buried him as well. And when Batravi died, the resistance essentially died with him. I remember once I mentioned to my father you know, in my young revolutionary day that if I was president, I would shut down the American embassy. He's like, that's a stupid thing to do. You know, why would you do that? Without America, even though I know America is bad, but you know we need America. And I think, man, I don't know where I heard this from. I think it was on the radio. Someone was making an, an analogy. You know, Haiti's relationship to the U.S. is one of which a man keeps feeding his own lambs to a bear, hoping that the bear does not eat him. Right? So he gives an arm, he gives a leg, he gives an ear that the beer wouldn't get him a lot, but eventually you have nothing left to give and you basically, you know, you mutilate yourself. You can follow Alain Martin's work by liking the Facebook page for his upcoming documentary. The page is entitled The Forgotten Occupation. I'm really, really looking forward to this project whenever it's ready and whatever else you have in store for us, Alain. Thank you again for talking to me and for your amazing insight. Thank you to Shelly Sky for giving me permission to use her beautiful music for this episode. Check out her debut album entitled Tutuni, which is available on all major music platforms. Thank you to Ed and Constance Humphrey for their help with the voice work. So visit www.waymagazine.com for more links and information for everything you heard about today. Also, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Way Magazine. <laughs>